0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. News flash, the Middle East is a bizarro place right now. The Saudis and Israelis are exchanging secret love letters. Lebanon is seriously in play with its prime minister potentially being held in luxury captivity. And Iran, having just expended arms, money and blood to rescue Syria's strongman, is billing itself as the region's most successful opponent of ISIS. Oh. And there's evidence that Turkey tried to have a dissident cleric kidnapped in Pennsylvania? I'm telling you, it's cray-cray. But don't listen to me. For today's show, I snagged a favorite voice on the region. Stay with us. Full disclosure is made possible by the support of our friends at Elwood Thompson's. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it is the best grocery in Virginia. And not just from my mouth. This was voted from... MSN, and the Daily Meal. Elwood's has been there since 1989 at the top of Kerrytown. Happy now to provide you with a full-service meat and seafood department, in-house bakery, coffee and juice bar, a made-to-order food station called Create, and a dining event space called The Beat. Hey, I practice what I preach because I'm there practically the whole week. Visit them at the top of Carytown at the corner of Elwood and Thompson Streets and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from Washington, D.C. is Eli Lake, Bloomberg View columnist. He was senior national security correspondent for The Daily Beast and covered Intel and national security for The Washington Times, The New York Sun, and UPI. Uh, I dragged him on this show because he is my favorite byline on this topic. I mean, kind of the bizarro machinations of the Middle East. I, I see some of his headlines, Eli, as Iran holds a hostage, Britain forgets who's dealing, who it's dealing with, the promising crisis in Saudi Arabia. Iran and Al Qaeda, best of frenemies. Um, are, are are you just not phased by this stuff?
1: Well, you cover the region for a long enough time, and you sort of are used to being surprised. But I think you hit a lot of the key themes about, um, you know, the Israeli Saudi alliance, the emergence of Iran in the region. Um, I count me as skeptical that Michael Flynn, the briefly um, Donald Trump's. Uh, National Security Advisor actually tried to – this gambit of uh, kidnapping um, Gulen, the Turkish cleric from uh, the Poconos and to bring him back to <laughs> – that's, that, yeah,
0: I mean, sc- that's a great screenplay. I mean I wish Stanley Kubrick were alive. But if you, if you are Fox News and you're pointing out the fake news, I believe that uh, you know, the good Christian and patriot Michael Flynn was attempting to deliver a turkey – to this cleric in the Poconos, maybe that's maybe that's the story. <laughs> ah, tip your waiters, try the veal. Uh, talk to me about Lebanon. I have no idea what the heck is going on there. Last week, the prime minister stepped down, seemingly under duress from both Saudi Arabia and Iran, which have huge influence in Beirut.
1: Well, the the interesting thing is that you know that we it's been well known that the son of the Saad Hariri, the son of uh, you know the slain prime minister from more than a decade ago was, you know, supported by Saudi Arabia in Lebanon. Um, The fact that he resigned his office in in Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia, is kind of extraordinary. And now there are charges that he is not allowed to leave, that he's effectively a hostage of the Saudis. Um, But a lot of this has to do with the fact that there has been a slow takeover of the lebanon through iran's proxies uh hezbollah which has sort of gotten their tentacles into all of their state institutions and that's the big issue for both israel and saudi arabia so you know the that they say um you know geopolitics makes for strange bedfellows but that is the fact you know that is the, they, that saudi, the saudis and the israelis share a common foe and i think that that has created a lot of ways the alliance that we're beginning to now see kind of come out in the open
0: I was always under the impression, Eli, that that uh, modern-day Lebanon is this uh, very careful equilibrium behind, b- between Saudi and Shunni, uh, Sunni – I'm sorry, Shiite and Sunni spheres of influence. And that oddly enough, you have some Lebanese people who have been claiming that Beirut is probably the most peaceful city in the Middle East since the Arab Spring broke out. But it seems that there's a lot of fear and anticipation and loathing right now that there might be another – uh, you know, a repeat of, of uh, 2006 between Israel and Lebanon again, or maybe the Saudis will back them this time to really root Hezbollah out of the region?
1: I think that there is, there. I mean, I think that's a very real possibility. You just have to listen to what Israeli and Saudi leaders are saying, but particularly the Israelis have said, you know, we're not going to allow for Hezbollah to establish positions and have an artery to Iran where they can have advanced weapons that will be threatening all of our cities. And, you know, the Israelis are usually pretty serious when they say such things.
0: But So are they really worried, the Israelis, about a land bridge? I mean, you and I have spoke about it in the past. I mean, for example, if Syria is connected to Israel and, and, and what is it, the Golan Heights, but you have concerns now that if Syria is, you effectively have a, a protected route of, of enemy territory that lets you right near Israel. And, and similarly with Lebanon, I mean, if that's a clean route, for Tehran to supply Hezbollah with uh, missiles and rockets and whatnot, I mean, you could see a serious escalation.
1: I think that's, I think that's a very real concern. And the reason why it, what you're hearing about it now is because of the success of really all sides against the barbarians in ISIS. But now that you know, you've gotten rid of the, the big threat from the Sunni jihadists in Syria, the next threat is, you know, will Syria become a vassal state of Iran, and in so doing, allow for the Iranians to make their proxy groups much more lethal than they have been. And that's the the really important, that's the the big issue.
0: Eli, why Um, is that even in question? I mean, uh, Iran had maybe the biggest role in in bolstering uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria. Uh, chemical attacks, whatever he threw at legitimate rebels and isIS fighters, and um, you would think that that Damascus is seriously in debt to Tehran right now
1: well, Assad is in debt to Tehran. I would say the Syrian people have another kind of debt to Tehran, and that is that they you know should run their revolutionary guard corps officers out of town on a rail. Um, you know this is a country that has enabled um, mass murder against what is largely the civilians of Syria, the Syrian people. Um, It's kind of amazing to me that there are so many progressives who are constantly bending over backwards to apologize for these thugs. Um, Because, you know, the Iranians and the Russians are responsible for extending, you know, the life of a regime that is responsible for killing, what, half a million? Of their own people. I mean, and, and, and a percentage of those, a small percentage, are certainly terrorists, but most of them are innocent people. And this, remember, in 2011, when the uprising against Bashar al Assad began, this was not an ISIS uprising. It was originally Syrian people organizing in a way and trying to kind of take their country back. And, um, you know, the response of the Iranians was to do whatever they could to protect their client. And, um, you know, to borrow the late his, Christopher Hitchens's description of Bashar al-Assad, the human toothpick remains, but, you know, o- only in the wake of, of, of mass graves. I mean, so I mean, I just think that, yeah, the Assad regime owes the Iranians a debt. But that's all the more reason, you know, to sort of understand that the Iranians are an alien force and should be, you know, really driven out of the Middle East. I mean, the notion that they have some sort of that they're a great power, a regional power, and they have as much of a right to interfere in the affairs of the region. Is, it's just nonsense. It's something that, unfortunately, um, the Obama administration kind of accepted during their nuclear negotiations. But in my view, it was uh, strategic malpractice.
0: Well, let me ask you, what should the Obama administration should have done with it? What should they have done with their red line that was crossed? Um, you know, John Kerry swooped in and said there's still a chance with the Russians as as intermediaries to disarm uh, Bashar al-Assad, I think we got egg on our face because there were subsequent chemical attacks after that. I mean, if you're the the ruler of the strongest country on the planet and you draw a humanitarian red line that you don't cross, I mean, we effectively let the guy barrel bomb his people uh, to oblivion. But once he starts using mustard gas or sarin or whatever it is. Why didn't we respect that red line and what kind of suasion could we have after the fact? I was always under the impression that we would have no cred with the Syrian street after that.
1: Well, I think that, you know, it's easy to sort of say in retrospect what you should do. But in my view, you know, Obama's foreign policy, particularly in the Middle East, is marked by opposing the last war. And in this respect, he you know is has much in common with uh, you know the French in the era of the Maginot Line. He was seeing everything through the lens of the Iraq War, where we committed more you know at, at our height like two hundred thousand American soldiers and coalition forces to rebuilding Iraq. Now, you know, I I, I resent the um, kind of rush for public apology of everybody, but. Um, you know, it's fair to say that that approach of sort of regime change and nation building on a grand scale is not something that we ought to repeat. <laughs> However, in the case of Syria, there was a humanitarian disaster. The proposal was not to send in two hundred thousand troops, but he but Obama could have shown you know leadership and recognized that, you know, just because you're a hammer, the whole world is not necessarily a nail and say, we need to have more of a commitment of U.S. forces in Syria in, as a way of, by the way, showing our commitment to get others to participate and to then affect the you know, dynamics on the ground, which is to say that if you leave it and just say, well, you know, we don't want to get involved, then, then the worst forces will fill the, the void. And they were the Iranians, the Russians, ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And eventually, of course, Obama did end up reluctantly coming back into the region, including Iraq after ISIS had taken over Mosul and Raqqa and announced and declared their own caliphate and had really posed this huge threat. But a lot of that could have been avoided had Obama been you know, more willing to use American force earlier on and to stick by his rhetoric. By the way, is—I is, mean the rhetoric remained neocon under Obama. He said Assad must go. I mean, who could not agree did, with that? Did
0: you really buy that, though? I wonder if implicitly Obama and Kerry and Hillary Clinton and, and continuing into the Trump administration with, uh, with Mattis and I almost forget the Secretary of State's name. He's been so diminished, Killer said that maybe they just implicitly want the enemy they know in power in Damascus versus this kind of amorphous Iraq disaster. Iraq does have to inform this experience because you have two – what is it, majority uh, uh, sectarian countries that are run by a strongman of, of the opposition sect, um, that you have a vacuum, you have other regional players that want to fill that vacuum. We botched Iraq so poorly, we're still paying for it. Iraq is still paying for it. How could we have, in, a, in an organized uh, way, having learned the lessons of Iraq, dismantled the Assad regime? I just didn't
1: see a way looking back. Well, I, First of all, I would push back on a little bit of what you just said there. Um, I mean, Iraq, the legacy of Iraq is a little bit more complicated than that. Um, We certainly, because of the Iraq War, we were able to consolidate the gains that began in the early 1990s for the Kurds to sort of build their own state, which I think is a great accomplishment, and we should support their efforts to to, to sort of establish that state peacefully. I disagreed with the decision to oppose the referendum. We also have had successive elections in Iraq. We have a legitimate constitution, There are huge problems in Iraq, but they tend to be overstated, I think, for partisan reasons. By the end of the Bush administration, the sectarian conflict was largely under control. Uh, To use an awful phrase, Al-Qaeda was truly on the run. And it was the Obama policy to announce that we were leaving, to basically treat the government in Iraq as if it was just a normal country like France and not continue to hold Maliki's hand and keep him in our orbit. Um, informed by a lot of really fuzzy and terrible ideas um, that sort of suggested that America intervention was a cause and not a cure for a lot of sectarian violence in the region. Um, it spun back out of control because of Obama's ideological adherence to this, you know, view, uh, or in my view, learning the wrong lessons of um, the Iraq war. Now, fast forward to Syria. No one is I mean, I don't think anybody would say we had to invade Syria the way that we invaded Iraq. But by the time it became um, the civil war that it was, it was important for the US largely through special forces and allies to have a plan to a sort of establish a beachhead where we would have most Syrians, who I don't think are Salafis, who are not radicals, drawn to our power base, which in, you know, encourages moderation and you know, pluralism, as opposed to radicals who will fill the void. So, you know, there's a there's a sort of I I would say that if you just look at it simplistically as to say, well, you know, when you upset Saddam Hussein and you topple that regime, chaos ensues. I, I don't know if that's the case. Saddam Hussein sowed the roots of the demise of Iraq by ruling the way that he did, by keeping his majority Shia population under siege constantly and. Sooner or later, that was going to burst out. Um, the question is, could we have figured out a better way to manage it? Of course, we could have. We approached it as if we were almost a neo-colonial power, and there would have been much better ways uh, to have been more in the background in helping the Iraqis author their liberation instead of you know sort of taking credit uh, as if this was you know the World War II or something like that. But you know, I mean, I'm saying I'll say it again: we, you know. Obama, but not just Obama, lots of, I mean, uh, the the West learned the wrong lessons from Iraq, which was, which is, we have to stay out. And, you know, we, that, we know that that lesson has been discredited because eventually even Obama had to get back in. So, uh, you know, there is no substitute for American power and we ought to just learn to live with that and get over our inordinate fear of interventions like this, because we are by far a better alternative to what happens when we leave these countries to the void. It doesn't mean that we have to permanently be there. It doesn't mean that we have to do things exactly like Iraq. I have plenty of criticisms and really plenty of criticisms of it. But the point here is that to think that you know, the, 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 the lesson of Iraq is to never intervene and to never get involved is nonsense. Um, and it's what led to, the, you know, to this nuclear deal with Iran, which, much to my surprise, we still see lots of people say what a wonderful deal it is, as the Iranians kind of run roughshod all over the Middle East.
0: Why? Uh, let, me, let me ask you something. I saw this this great byline of yours in the summer. It says um, talks reassure Israel that U.S. wants Iran out of Syria. What did Israel want throughout? Looking at the situation um, again, was it was it one where I mean, there's no love lost between Bashar al-Assad and Netanyahu or anybody in Israel? But it's more again the enemy you know versus the amorphous ISIL caliphate thing that could be on your border. But what they get right now is maybe you don't have ISIS, but you have the Iranians with free reign over big parts. I mean, the IRGC there, uh, Russia, uh, there, there is a bill to pay. There is a debt to pay. And how do Israel and the United States nudge the Iranians out of Syria? I mean, they could, they could plausibly say that it's theirs. They, they've spent bloodshed and money and boots on the ground for it.
1: Well statecraft is not a debating society they can plausibly say whatever the hell they want Um, it doesn't necessarily make it so i mean the way that you get them out there is you 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 have to force them out basically i mean you have to say you know we find it unacceptable to have the revolutionary guard and by the way i don't think that syrians want to live under the boot of iran or their proxies either this is another like great you know my view is not that america should invade countries and toppled dictators, you know, willy nilly, but there's much that we can do short of invading a country to support, um, as we should, as a, as, as a, you know, the, the first modern uh, republic. Right. Um, you know, the wishes of people who do not want to live under, you know, fanatics, which is what the Iranians are, and we should have, we should be under no illusions about that. And I have to say, when I wrote that piece, I did have very good sources. From both the Israeli and the U.S. side say that they had reached an understanding that the Israelis would be involved in the strategy for getting the Iranians out of Syria. But so far, we haven't seen any detailed plans by the U.S. to use its military or allied military to try to, you know, again, push the Iranians out. And uh, what I fear is that they will be treated like, um, you know, a stakeholder at, or a seat at the table. In determining the fate of Syria, to which they have no legitimate claim. Um, this is, remember, they're, they're, the reason that they're in Syria is because they supported the mass murder of an awful dictator who, if there was justice in the world, would be hanging from a lamppost or at the dock at The Hague. They have no, they have no claim at all, and it's important for Western and decent countries to stand up and shout that from the rafters.
0: We are talking to Eli Lake. He is national security and intelligence correspondent, uh, columnist for Bloomberg View. I love his byline. That's why I horse collared him onto this show. I even dragged him on on a Saturday. He's too kind to join us. I am fascinated by this bizarre love triangle um, Syria, Israel, and Egypt. You were always taught that this was kind of, uh, you know, these two do not mix, they don't like each other. There's no love lost, but. I wonder if the tipping point was al-Sisi's return to power after the, um, you know, the Arab Spring in Egypt kind of ended, if you will, and they realized that maybe real politic considerations were stronger and they have to keep um, extremists within their borders at bay. What caused this love fest suddenly? I mean, these guys never loved Bibi Netanyahu, especially. You think about him in the 90s, it was all vitriol between Riyadh and, and, and Tel Aviv, and now all you're reading is is about them kind of joining hands when the lights are off and talking about Lebanon. Uh,
1: well, I think there's a I think it is it's an alliance that's largely uh, born out of uh, two big factors. One is the rise of Iran in the region after the fall of Saddam Hussein. And the second is the Obama administration's foreign policy which, you know, articulated in a now infamous Atlantic interview with the president where he said the Saudis needed to learn to share the region with the Iranians. I could, it's hard for me to think of a more wrong wrongheaded, uh, deleterious thing for an American president to say. And then, of course, Trump is elected and he tweets or says something just as bad every couple of weeks, it seems. But I digress. Um, but the point is, is that um, those two factors, um, because America is the great ally now of Egypt, Saudi and Israel. Um, For them to sort of take a view that the Iranians have a place at the table, too. Why can't they have a role in the Levant, which is basically what, you know, the effect of the um, Obama policy was, Um, plus the rise of Iran, I think, really accelerated this process of the Saudis and the Israelis through back channels and the Sisi government and the Israelis through back channels and openly now because there is a diplomatic relationship there. Um beginning to, prepare, like, what do we do about the uh, elephant in the room or the elephant in the region, which is Iran? And I think you will begin to see now that Trump is in charge and you have an administration that does not share um, Obama's views on this, uh, that you will see that much more, I think, in the open. You'll see that these major forces will be working more together. And don't, don't count out, by the way, United Arab Emirates and particularly Abu Dhabi which is uh, feels very strongly about the Iranian influence as well.
0: What about the grievance of, of, of the Palestinian issue and the two-state solution? That's just been on back burner for the longest time. And again, I, I recognize that something tipping point wise with Arab Street and public opinion happened around Tahrir Square and, and the fall of the regime that replaced uh, the regime that it ousted. Uh, maybe there's, there's, Palestinian fatigue. You just never hear about it anymore. You never hear, you, you do hear certain headlines about Gaza and the West Bank and Hamas, maybe, uh, you know, with, with uh, getting back with Abu Mazen in, in one way or another. But it's almost played third or fourth or fifth fiddle to what's going on in Lebanon and what's going on between the Israelis and the Saudis. I even heard rumors that, I, I don't know, maybe you heard this is true or not, that maybe once a week Netanyahu talks to al Sisi in Egypt.
1: Well, that doesn't surprise me at all. I'm sure that's true. I'm sure they talk more than once a week. Um, They're neighbors. They have, as I said, sort of the same (laughs) geopolitical interests. Um, But, you know, to your point, I think it's a little bit different. I think that that traditionally, you know, the Palestinians were supported by the Arab states that made it sort of a major issue, which is to say, you know, that the formulation in the 2000s and the 1990s was you need to do something about the Israelis in the peace process, and then we can talk to you about kind of accomplishing these other things you want us to do in the region. And now that sort of, uh, that's been dropped. I mean, yes, of course, the Saudis would like to see a Palestinian state, uh, the Egyptian, you know, ditto, um, but they're not going to let that hold up their cooperation.
0: That's stunning. I mean, that is stunning because the read in the past was that is
1: what always held up cooperation. Well, but, if you read all, I would, but Tom hold on, Friedman, hold on Tom Friedman's but that's a function of the Iranians. That's a function of the Iranians. That's like you know, that, listen, um, you know, Palestinian Palestinian statehood is a nice to have. Defeating Iran is a is a have to have. Why so, is
0: defeating Iran a have to have? These are co players in OPEC. I mean, yes, I do understand the Shiite and Sunni divide. I do understand expansionist desires, and it runs up against you know Saudi Arabia as the the Arab world's torchbearer and. Egypt is kind of the cradle of Arab civilization versus uh, these apostates from Tehran and Qom and Esfahan coming. But you would think that that's kind of secondary in concern. They have a lot in common regionally, financially, economically, OPEC-wise. Well, it's OK.
1: I, 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 first of all, I don't think that there's any particular reason why Persians and Arabs have to be at, at odds. The problem is the um, fanatic terrorist hostage takers who happen to run Iran today, um, they are ideological fanatics. They, uh, you know, have squashed any chance at reform in their own nation. They are responsible for supporting the rebel groups in Yemen that took out a UN-recognized government. Admittedly, not, nothing perfect. They have made a play at the government in Bahrain. And the Arab Gulf states rightfully see... That the Iranians are coming for them. And by the way, the Israelis rightfully see that the Iranians are coming for them because their fanatic, hostage taking terrorist leaders constantly speak of their fervent wish to destroy the world's only Jewish state. So, this is something that is unique to the character of this revolutionary regime. And, you know, frankly, the world will be much better off when that regime is replaced by a more moderate and democratic one. And, mm. you know, I've been saying for years that that's something that the world has, a, has an interest in um, because the Iranians are, you know, they're in every sense a rogue state. That's, that's the key thing. And they do not play by these sort of rules. And yes, I, I join everybody who has the long list of criticisms of the Saudis too. Um, and certainly the Israelis have their faults, although I would not put them on the same par. But the point is, is that the Saudis the Egyptians, the Israelis, they're American allies. The Iranians are responsible for the roadside bombs that killed and maimed hundreds and thousands of Americans in uh, Iraq. They have um, been extremely opportunistic with even Sunni terrorist groups like Al Qaeda and others. I mean, they are, they are the, and, and if you think about it, the, the era we're living in of um, sort of uh, sacred terror you know the Henry Ford of modern Islamic terrorism are the Iranians. They can they, they developed this in the 1980s. Look back to uh, the embassy barracks bombing. Um, this was you know through Iranian proxies. Uh, a guy by the name of Imad Mugniya who worked closely with them. So you know that's why they, Iran is such a problem. It's their it's the character and nature of their leadership which is the
0: pits. I'm just struck you know and having been born in Iran myself, but by how. <laughs> Off the conventional wisdom has been on Iran for almost 40 years, right? Ronald Reagan sending a Bible and a birthday cake to the Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, yeah. the, the arms channel going on, you know, acts of evil, Khatami coming in, um, you know, most recently the idea that was that was wafting around. I remember when when there was the build-up to the Iraq War in 2002, 2003. They, people were like, this is so smart because if you destabilize Iraq, and you destabilize Afghanistan, there you have Iran in the middle, which is bound to pop. Um, you know, and it had its, it had its um, issue with the Iranian street in 2009, but that was snuffed out. And these guys, you can argue, and you have, that they've emerged so much stronger with the sphere of influence in Syria, with uh, Baghdad now being an Iran-friendly regime, having ayatollahs itself, um, this is forty years that have passed Eli you know since the revolution and and the u s has consistently been wrong that the the wrong policy prescriptions on it
1: well that 's certainly true I mean this is enabled by people like Javad Zarif, who is really uh, a gold medal liar um and you know tells a lot of audiences and think tanks and other diplomats what they want to hear um, and he tries to put Um, you know, a a soft, nice face on a vicious regime, Um, which is why I have uh, really taken, uh, you know, uh, uh, a lot of opportunities to try to expose the um, many falsehoods that flow from Javad Zarif's mouth uh, whenever he seems to open it. So, but that, that, it's not just Zarif. It's like there's a whole, like almost an industry that seeks to um present Iran as something that they're not. I mean we I mean we both are familiar with someone I'm sure you know Trita Parsi who is a Swedish Iranian activist and author and you know his his main job is to Buff the image of uh, the leading state sponsor of terrorism in the world and make it seem like they're just a bunch of normal – I never
0: never had the guts to ask that question. Is that a lobbying organization?
1: Of course it's a lobbying organization. Come on. But the
0: National Iranian-American Council in Washington, D.C., he's known as a a thought leader. He speaks everywhere. He's not a thought leader, okay. So, how is that? If we had sanctions, how is that allowed? How are they allowed to have a lobbying arm or a, an influence well, arm? Well, they say,
1: okay, because first of all, they because they do it through Iranian Americans, right? But we know that most Iranian Americans come from families that had to flee, um, you know, the, 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 the Jacobins in Iran, right? Hmm. But he claims, oh, no, no, there's all these Iranian Americans who really think they're terrific and we want to lift sanctions and, and do business with them. Now, it used to be. There will always be people who will lobby on behalf of like kind of oil companies that want to lift sanctions and stuff like that. And they were in a certain lane. But what what, what Trita Parsi did is basically to try to say that the AIPAC model of Jewish Americans, you know, in favor of the, uh, you know, U.S.-Israeli relationship, he would do that with Iranian Americans. And on paper, that sounds like a really good idea. <clears throat> and when he came up with this... This was way back in the late '90s, with um, in the early 2000s, when you had Khatami, the original reformer, right. by the way, who 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 still is like not allowed to say anything in like official Iranian press, which tells you everything you need to know, right? Um, so it was it was so that so there was a glimmer in the late '90s, in the early 2000s, like hey, maybe Iran is really reforming. We had Christiane Amanpour go there, and you know it was a moment. And of course, what we found was that beginning in 1999 with the Tehran University uprisings and like, you know, through the awful years there, you know, the Revolutionary Guard, the deep state of Iran made sure to snuff that out. And when we saw in 2009, um, another glimmer of a green movement, they were snuffed out in a vicious and brutal way. We always, we should always remember the Netta and many others whose names we don't know um, of people who were killed in the streets by these thugs. And yet all the while, you know, you will occasionally get treated Parsi, Parsi saying something about, you know, it's terrible, the human rights or whatever. But he, he advocates for basically normalizing Iran. And here's where I think the fundamental lie is in, that, in his organization. Unlike the relationship between Jewish Americans and Israel, who most Jewish Americans like Israel... And they haven't had a terrible experience there. Most Iranian Americans fled Iran after the revolution. And so anybody who sort of knows anything about this can sort of see through it. But unfortunately, there are a lot of people in Washington who are easily gulled by Trita Parsi. And here we are.
0: Well, let me tell you what's regrettable is that yeah. um, invariably Americans who do have the gumption and the, the chutzpah to visit Iran come back with great reports. They're They're greeted there. Um, you know, you, the, the stories you hear about satellite dishes and Baywatch and Cosmo magazine and Johnny sure. Walker Black and everything. And for for years, I mean, Tehran and Washington and, and you know, anything from Obama making an address to Persians on the Persian New Year or on, uh, on aid, uh, they've suggested that person-to-person contacts, you know, wrestling team to wrestling team contacts are great. But we have no beef with the people. It's the government that we have a beef with. So how do you establish – that back channel. I mean, you can have person to person exchanges until you turn blue in the face. But if the governments are at each other's throats and if they're backing proxies and making difficulties in the region, then nothing is ever going to change.
1: Well, I mean, listen, this this tactic of allowing Westerners to visit your country and showing them Potemkin villages, as we both know, goes back to uh, you know the Joseph Stalin years in the Soviet Union. I mean, it's an old ploy, right? I mean. Jane, Jane, Jane oh, Fonda with a I wonderful.
0: A, if I take a median Iranian to a Chipotle in Manhattan, I I guarantee you they'd have a great time. I take them well, to but, Central but, okay, Park. But our
1: country is like our country is a, is a great. This is a, this is the point. Okay, is that yes, of course you can you can you can. Vi- I visited Iran once back in two thousand and two, and it's not you know it's it, it's not like North Korea. But the point is is that they don't show you. The polit- they don't show you the jails filled with political prisoners. They don't show you, you know, the Friday prayers that are led by, or the show trials on their television, or the, you know. But you can Friday argue the or- same
0: with China. I'm not trying to be a, an apologist for Tehran yeah. or
1: anything. I mean, we, why are we,
0: we, we split hairs? You can argue so many similarities. It doesn't have to be a North Korea or a, a Brazil yeah, course, necessarily. Right. And that's what kills me because there's such admiration, I think, from the Iranian people. I know from from family, from Iranians that I know, people who have come here, expats, people who go back, who like America, who like Americans. But this is ongoing. And again, the revolution was in 79. You're talking almost the 40th anniversary of this. And it's, it's traversed how many American regimes who have yet to figure it out. And now Iran is arguably stronger than it's ever been with, with Syria as a proxy, with Iraq kind of taken off as a threat. So I wonder how this is going to morph you know, in closing and what goes on in Lebanon um what your predictions are for that if this is another i know i
1: i never want to hazard predictions when it comes to something like that but i would just say that uh, you're right we <laughs> don't have any quarrel with the iranian people the iranian people i mean with, persian culture is you know one of the great cultures obviously you know if you if you know, if and what kills story, me, know
0: what kills me is it's 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 a culture built on hospitality so when you see hostage taking more your than hospitality
1: Cyrus the Great probably invented the notion of human rights. Mm. If you want to go way back.
0: <laughs> Wait till I come up to D.C. and take you to a good Cholo Kababi in Tyson's. So I'm, 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 I'm looking, looking forward. Never... I, love, I, I love it. But, but in closing, uh, what are, I mean, there's a, there is a lot of expectation now that something – there is a powder keg situation in, in Lebanon. Is it going to be a repeat or a second – a rematch of the 2006 second Israel-Lebanon war?
1: Well, I, I don't I, – I'm going to dodge your question because I don't like to get involved in making such predictions like this, but I will say this. If indeed the rumors are true, um, then we will not know the exact timing of when it starts because that's the kind of thing that, will, that won't leak. Does that make sense? Like, sure. You don't, um, but the, keep in mind that there's also a strategic interest that is served – by both the Iranian side and the Israeli, Saudi, Egyptian, Emirati side. And that is that the Iranians can show, oh my God, you know, there are they're, we're, they're constantly these other powers scheming to make war in Lebanon. And that I think it's in the Israeli and the Saudi and the, and the Egyptian interest to get Hezbollah and other people who might think about making their bargain with the Iranian forces to think twice. And to think that you know, there, things may change dramatically soon. So, that's I would just say that um, there's an interest in that, and that no one will know until it happens. Until, until the guns begin firing, you will not know. You know exactly the timing of the war. Those kinds of things don't leak.
0: Eli Lake, you are a gentleman and a scholar. I cannot no, thank you, thank you enough so for much. I love doing the show on, on Saturday. Bloomberg View columnist, national security. Correspondent, Macher, what, what, what other words can I use? I mean, I'm Sephardic. I don't have uh, <laughs> appreciation. Well, I, I
1: applaud you for Macher. That's a very, uh, that's a very deep pull of Yiddish.
0: Thank you. I love your work, and you're actually really thank prolific, you. which, you know, if you go on Bloomberg View, uh, BV.com, you can see all a gallery of, of um, uh, Eli's work, which I highly recommend. So thank you, sir. Thank you. Full disclosure. Catch us on NPR One and on iTunes at fulldradio.com. Like us everywhere. Friendster, Napster, Grokster. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week.